Great God in heaven, we come before you this morning. We are humbled at the opportunity to worship you. God, to hear your word as it is preached and proclaimed to us, to sing songs taken directly out of your holy scripture. Father, we ask as we come to this point in the worship service that you would speak in spite of my foolishness and my frailty. Lord, I know that I am an unworthy and incapable preacher. But God, you and your spirit and your word are mighty in spite of me and my shortcomings. So Lord, we ask as a church together with one voice, with one heart, that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your spirit from your holy word. That Lord, my words might be stopped and yours flow forward. God, that you would pierce our hearts and convict us of where we have failed you. Challenge us, Lord, to strive to live our lives modeled after your example. Lord, to believe in you, our Savior, to give our lives over to you completely. Lord, for those of us needing comfort this morning, would you comfort us? For those of us who need encouragement this morning, would you encourage us? Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your holy word. We ask these things in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to take it and turn once again with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 3. Remember the General Electric Power Company. The E in electric is Ephesians. So you're in the New Testament. You're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to make our way there together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take one out of the back of the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word at all, feel free to keep that as our gift to you. We have plenty. We'll replenish them. That is perfectly fine. Whether you're looking in a a book with pages or whether you're looking on a device that's mobile or a tablet or you're following along on the screens, however you're accessing the Word of the Lord, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word. As we look now at Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be beginning in verse 7. The Word of the Lord says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We look back at this passage again, and we're going to work our way a little further in our workbook this morning. We look at this passage because for ages and ages, God implied to the Israelites that the message of the gospel was for every people, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. 
Remember, one of the small ways that he did that was where he placed the promised land. The promised land was right in between all of the major empires in antiquity. If you were in Egypt and you wanted to trade with Assyria or Babylon, guess what country you had to go through? You had to go through Israel. He brought all of the nations to them and set them aside that they would be a witness to all the nations. But this was more implicit in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. Now that Christ has come, it is very explicit. And the Bible teaches us that that message of hope and salvation and life after death, hope of resurrection, eternal life with the Father in paradise, is the manifold wisdom that is to be broadcast to all the world through the church. And so, that's what we see in verse 10. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may, may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is the responsibility of the church. We talked about how there are two types of references to church in the Bible. You have the universal church, and in ancient creeds and the things written in Latin, they'll say the holy Catholic church. The word for universal in Latin is Catholic, okay? So don't freak out if you happen to read something and say, wait a minute, what is this reference to the Catholic church? I'm a Southern Baptist. I don't know about this Catholic church. It means universal. So the universal church is everybody everywhere from all eternity past to all eternity future, whoever has, whoever is, whoever will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you're part of the church, the family of God. The other type of reference we have in the Bible to the church is specified local churches like Bethany Baptist Church. Specified local congregations like the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem. We looked at how the church, the word ecclesia in Greek, shows up all over the Old and New Testament. They translated the Old Testament into Greek a long, long time ago, and they used to use that for study. They called it the Septuagint. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ecclesia shows up 104 times. In the New Testament, it shows up 74 times. The congregation, the local body of believers, is extremely important to the Lord, and it is exemplified all throughout Scripture. So that's part of the reason we're going through what we're going through this month. Because what we believe as a local body, what it means to be attached to a local church is absolutely essential for Christian living. So walk back through with me some of what we talked about last week. We talked about our common salvation. Being a Christian does not mean being a good church member. It does not mean being a good person. It does not mean having a family member. It only means... One thing, believing on Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior and turning from your life of sin, repenting and turning to Him. Remember, it doesn't matter how good of a person we may be if we're not in right standing with the Lord. That means if we're not righteous before the Lord, it doesn't matter if our whole family is a family of Christians. If we don't believe personally and individually, we will not be saved. So the first thing that is of most importance, you cannot be a part of any local body in true, in truth and in honesty, genuinely, unless you first are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first step of being a part of any local church, or the universal church for that matter, is believing in Jesus. Believing that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect life, 
which fulfilled every single letter of the law, that He died our death in our place as a substitute, took the wrath of God on Himself, and then three days later was raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. If you do not believe on that, then truly you are not a church member. Even if you put on a good show, even if you've done all the things outwardly, even if you act great outwardly, if inwardly you don't know the Lord Jesus, then truly you're not a member of the universal church. And you may have the local church fooled for now, but eventually it will come to the surface that you don't truly believe and you never were a real believer and member of the church. So that's stage one. If you're not a believer, you can't be a church member. That's just part of it. So you can fake us out and and make us think, hey, you know what? I am. I'm going through all the right motions. And we can't know your heart. All right? But eventually, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there will come a day where the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Scripture tells us that there are people that will go up to the Lord and say, but Lord, I cast out demons in your name. I did incredible works and miracles in your name, Lord. And he'll say, I have no idea who you even are. The omniscient God who knows everything there is to know will look at us if we do not believe and say, I don't even know you. Get out of my sight. Folks, the most important thing about all of this is you have to believe in Jesus. Part of believing is it changes your heart. It changes your wants. It changes your desires. And so then you begin to desire to do these other things. You begin to change who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. So those things need to be taken place. So then, if you are a believer, that's where the next section comes in. As Southern Baptists, we believe in two primary ordinances. That means two things that are exemplified in Scripture that we should do as believers as a special act of worship. It's more than just singing songs. It's more than the preaching of God's Word. It's something that is unique in a category all to itself. And we call them these two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. These two things are in a special category of their own. Now listen, you you may be familiar with other denominations, and the Catholic Church has a larger list of these ordinances. Sometimes they're called sacraments, all right? There's another larger list of these ordinances or sacraments, okay? They put in the Catholic Church and in some other denominations, they have seven instead of two. So let's let's look briefly before we walk into the differences between these denominations that have seven sacraments versus us as Southern Baptists who have just two ordinances, all right? Baptism is top of the list for the Holy Catholic Church, all right? For the, the Roman Catholic Church, baptism's at the top, but it's a different type of baptism. We believe in what this book is titled, Believer's Baptism. That means that we believe we should be baptized after we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in many other traditions, there are people who believe that baptism is synonymous with, in the New Testament, circumcision in the Old Testament. So just as people in the Old Testament would circumcise their babies on the eighth day, There are Christian traditions that believe you should baptize your babies as infants and then later on in life have a confirmation of that baptism that took place. You're baptizing them in hope, in faith, that one day they will accept Christ, that they will believe. 
We don't adhere to that because that's not exampled in Scripture. I've heard some great men of God make great arguments for that belief because they relate it so closely to the covenant of circumcision. And yes, that that is a direct correlation, but that's not the example that we see in the early church. If that was the way we were supposed to do it, we'd see that all over the book of Acts. When the Philippian jailer got saved, he and his whole household would be baptized. And then when they had babies, it would talk about their babies were baptized immediately once, once they were born. So those first two that you see listed there is actually infant baptism and then a later confirmation in their life if they ever do truly believe in the Lord Jesus. They also believe in Holy Communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. But then they add confession, marriage, holy orders, which is the same as ordination, and the anointing of the sick or, or last rites, to have a preacher come and, and pray over you and offer forgiveness of your sins on your deathbed, so to speak, or to come and anoint you and pray for your healing if you're very sick and in the hospital. I, I want to make sure that we know we do all these things as a church. We just don't put them on the same level as baptism and the Lord's Supper, like our, our brothers and sisters in other denominations. So, we do baptize believers' baptism. We do take the Lord's Supper. We do confess our sins one to the other. Now, we don't go to a specific place and confess to a priest, and the priests give us a penance or a job or a task that we must do in order to compensate for that sin, but we do, should, ought to have accountability in our lives So that if I have a failure, if I sin and I know it, I have somebody who's helping me along that I can confess my sins to and they can reassure me, listen, Jesus loves you. He died for those sins. Now let's put in place a plan to turn from those sins and work together to have accountability. That's a good Christian practice. But you don't need a priest to offer absolution. You you don't need somebody to offer to tell you or, or give you penance to do to make up for those sins. Um, when they talk about marriage, extremely important in the church. But again, it's not a sacrament that's on the same level as baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the same way with holy orders or ordination, we ordain ministers, we ordain deacons, and that is extremely sacred and important, but it's just not on the same level as baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I hope that you see, we go visit people in the hospital. We do these things just slightly different with different emphases, and with the understanding that what is shown to us in Scripture in baptism and the Lord's Supper are elevated above these other types of ministry. Okay? So let's take a look first at baptism. All right? It says there in your book, as Christians, we are to walk in obedience to our Lord. Our Lord tells us our first step of obedience as a Christian is to be baptized. So who should be baptized? Believers. Only believers in Jesus are to be baptized. This is why we refer to baptism as believer's baptism. You see, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change of heart. It's a visual representation of the gospel. My favorite analogy for baptism is a wedding ring, all right? So coming up on 10 years ago, all right, on June 12, 2010, I had the blessing, the privilege, one of the greatest days of my life to marry this beautiful woman who sits down here in the front row. So we're coming up on 10 years, but if, if on the 10th anniversary I decide, you know what, I'm taking my wedding ring off. All right, it's off right now. Uh-oh, am I not married? Did I just give up my marriage? Baby, I'm so sorry. I, I still love you. Can we, what, what, all right, the ring's back on. It's okay, we're married again. 
Is that how wedding rings work? No, that is not how a wedding ring works. The ring does not make you married. The ring shows everybody else that you are married. What married us was the marriage, the ceremony, the vows, the commitments that we made one to another. So baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't have a saving power. There's not something mystical or magical in going under the water that saves us. But it is a testimony to all of our local church, to all of our brothers and sisters, this is real to me. I believe this, and I believe it so much. I need to be buried with Jesus symbolically. I need to be raised with Jesus symbolically. So that just like a wedding ring, everybody that sees you be baptized knows beyond a shadow of a doubt you believe in Jesus. Now, I think over the years, we've gotten so focused on baptism, we've diluted the meaning of it. We baptize people for any reason. As soon as somebody says, I want to be baptized, we fill up the, we fill up the tub, we dunk them right then. Let's baptize them. I want you to know we don't do that at Bethany. If you want to be baptized, you're going to sit down with a pastor, with a minister, and make sure that you understand the significance of what you're walking into. This is you saying, for the rest of my life, I believe in Jesus. I want the church to know. I want this to be my wedding ring that shows the world that I am a true believer. I want to be buried like Jesus was buried. I want to be raised like Jesus was raised. And I understand that there is something mystical and special and important and mysterious about how this works, but I want to worship Christ in that way. Because, listen, we shouldn't enter those waters flippantly. And I know plenty of people over and over again, I hear stories of, well, you know, I was 8 or 9 years old, I I was 10 or 11 years old, and, you know, we went to VBS and all my buddies were going down, or or my parents really wanted me to be baptized, or I saw my brother or my sister or my cousin get baptized, and our whole family celebrated and rejoiced, and I just, I kind of wanted my own party, sort of, you know? I wanted everybody to rejoice with me. I, I wanted to go down front because all my friends were going down front. That's not a reason to get baptized. You know what? I've only ever been sprinkled on top of my head. I've never actually been buried under the water and raised to new life. That's a a prerequisite to being a member of this church, that you be baptized by going under the water like Jesus went into the grave. Well, you know what? I I like all the people there at the church, and I I know i got to do that to be a member, so I'll just be baptized just because that's what i got to do. We don't want to baptize people for that either. Folks, the only reason to be baptized is because you truly believe and you understand this is a special way to worship Jesus. There is something incredibly powerful about uniting ourselves with Christ. And let's look at what we see in believer's baptism example in Acts. Turn with me to Acts 37 through 39, chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. This is, this is the culmination of the sermon at Pentecost and It says, when they heard this, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, it'll be on the screens for us. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter preached the gospel to them, and they are cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Listen, folks, that's the reason to be baptized. Because there is an urging and a longing in our souls to be united with Christ in that way. Brothers, what shall we do? And they say, repent and be baptized. 
Look again with me in Acts chapter 8. Another example of believer's baptism. Philip is one of the deacons who helped serve at the tables, and the Lord uses him in mighty and powerful ways. And as he's going along, there is a eunuch, there's a a high-ranking official who's riding in his chariot. And we know that this guy is wealthy because he's got a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. That was a big deal back then. So he's riding along in his chariot. I don't know how he's reading it because we don't have, you know, like the nice shocks and springs that we do, so he can't really focus. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gives Philip this supernatural ability to run, and he just runs up alongside the chariot, and so he's saying, hey man, uh, what you reading? And he says, uh, well, I'm reading the scroll of Isaiah. He goes, well, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, how on earth can I? Now folks, if that's not relatable, I don't know what is. Has anybody in here ever read the book of Isaiah and had somebody say, what you reading? Reading the book of Isaiah. Do you know what's that going on? <laughs> no, I got, I got no clue. Anybody else in that club other than me? Man, so many times I go through Isaiah and I'm like, I got to break out my study notes. I don't know what's going on here. All right? That's what the eunuch is going through. So then Philip explains the gospel to him through Isaiah. And in verse 34 it says, The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. Listen, that's the kind of reason to be baptized. Because you believe. Because you know that it's true. And that eunuch couldn't even stop himself. He said, man, this is incredible. This news is great. What stops me from taking the next step and being baptized? And Philip said, I got no clue, man. And then the eunuch said, wouldn't you know it? Even though we're in the desert, there's a body of water. So they stop and they pull over and he baptizes them down under the water. They both go into the water. Every example is believer's baptism dunked under the water and raised up because Christ was buried in the grave and raised to new life. Last example is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 30. It'll be on the screen. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the Philippian jailer. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed, his, washed their wounds. And then he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Listen, the Philippian jailer is in his home guarding these people. All of his family is there. They all hear the gospel together. They all decide to believe on the Lord Jesus, and then they all are baptized. Every example we have is somebody who believes in the Lord and then is baptized. It's it's all over Scripture. So why should we be baptized? Well, we, we already referenced it briefly, but Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 That's the Great Commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Great Commission. Go therefore, baptize them. We're commanded to be baptized and to baptize others. It's exampled. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized. Jesus got baptized. It was exampled for us in Jesus. He commands us to do it. He did it himself. Why wouldn't we do it? 
Then it's pictured. There's a beautiful picture in Romans chapter 6. I know it says verses 4 and 5 there, but I'm going to start at verse 3. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Folks, it's commanded. Jesus does it as an example to us. And then there's this beautiful picture. The language I have used this entire sermon about being buried with him, that's straight out of the book. It's straight from the Bible, from Romans chapter 6. Buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. We say that when we baptize somebody because it's straight out of the book. This is a special category of worshiping the Lord that we recognize as Southern Baptists. But there are unique features to it that are different with us than with other denominations. I'm not condemning their interpretation. There are people who have studied their whole lives and believe with all their might that infant baptism and a confirmation service is the way to go. I'm just telling you that as many arguments and as many books as I've read, I just don't personally see it in Scripture the way that we see believers' baptism by immersion. And so it is a prerequisite that if you want to join Bethany Baptist Church and have never been baptized by being buried with Christ and raised to newness of life, you come and you say, hey, I'm married, but you don't have a wedding ring on. And I just got to ask, if you're married and you're proud of your spouse, how come you're not wearing your wedding ring? If you really are proud and bold enough to say, I love and believe in Jesus, even if you've been baptized before, there's something about it that says, listen, I've I got to be baptized. I gotta, I'll do it again because it's that, it's that important. I didn't mean it when I was a child, but now I get it. And I need for my church to know, I need for my family, my brothers and my sisters to understand, I was dead and buried with Jesus. I was raised to newness of life. So that's why baptism is so utterly important. It's all over Scripture. That's why it's such an important part of being a member here at Bethany. So the second ordinance that we observe, that we worship through, is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act. It's another picture of the gospel. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. So is the Lord's Supper, that we are to continually practice until our Lord's return. Jesus never asked his disciples to remember his birth. He did, however, ask them to remember his death and resurrection. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is one of the most, even though it's pictured and exampled and shown and demonstrated in other places in the Gospels, right here is one of the most succinct, straightforward explanations we get of the Lord's Supper. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23 Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. Folks, it's that straightforward. It's that succinct. It's extremely powerful. It's an extremely important thing that we do to proclaim the death and resurrection of the Lord more so in a more significant and unique way than all of our songs and all of our preaching. There is something that is powerful. Just like with baptism, there is something that is powerful and extremely worshipful in taking the Lord's Supper together in a loving and respectful manner. It draws us together as a community. So the Lord's Supper is explained there. It is the Lord's instruction. He tells us to do it in that passage. It's symbolic. It's a reminder. It's a declaration. It is sacred. So who can take the Lord's Supper? Those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have been baptized. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, the word of the Lord says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They did not devote themselves to the breaking of bread. That is a reference to the Lord's Supper. They did not devote themselves to that until after they received the word and were baptized. Folks, you should be a baptized believer if you're going to partake of the bread and the cup. If you're not, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself in ways you may not even see or realize. But in the same way, we have to examine ourselves. If we just flippantly go about taking the Lord's Supper and don't treat it worshipfully and don't give it the significance that it deserves, folks, we're eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. That's not my words. That's straight out of the Word of the Lord. I'm not trying to add anything extra. That's exactly what we just read. So there's, there's ways to examine ourselves to prepare for the Lord's Supper. So the first way is to confess sin. If you'll notice, every time we take the Lord's Supper here, we put a confession on the screen and we read it together. Oftentimes, it's straight out of Scripture. Psalm 51. Corporately, we confess that we are sinful. Then we give a time for people to respond and for people to confess their sins, make things right one to another, make things right before the Lord. So you confess your sin. First John tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Then we commit to Christ. It tells us about that in Romans 12, 1. You confess your sins, you commit to Christ, and then lastly, you restore relationships. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, talk about leaving your gift at the altar and go and make things right with your brother or your sister, then come back and offer, offer your gift. So I, I'm dead serious that this is instruction to us that if you are holding a grudge against somebody, your brother, your sister in Christ, and you come to this place to partake of the Lord's Supper, by all means make it right before you take the bread and the cup. 
Even if you've got to stop during the time to confess and repent and commit and examine, during that time, go across the congregation and say, TJ, man, I've wronged you, brother, and I am sorry. I've held a grudge against you, and I can't partake of this bread and cup until we get right again and make it right right there. If not, if you can't bring yourself to do that, pass the plate. Folks, that's another aspect of partaking of the Lord's Supper that should never be true of this church. This should never be the church where somebody takes the plate and passes it and does not take bread or the cup and the rest of the church goes, Oh, did y'all see so-and-so? Mmm, they didn't take that bread. They didn't drink that cup. I'm telling you, do you think they're really believers? Do you think that they just abandoned the faith? What if they don't believe no more? Wonder who they got a grudge against. Wonder what their problem is. Hmm, wonder what's going on. That's not the time or the place. I don't know that there ever is a time or a place for that kind of senseless gossip and slander. The time and the place for the Lord's Supper is to look at my own heart, to look in my own soul and make myself right before the Lord. And if I can't get to that place, I'm going to pass the plate, even as your pastor. If I'm trying to administer the Lord's Supper and I've got something against my brother, a grudge, some unforgiveness that I can't with let go of or make right before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pass the plate. And if you want to judge me, you judge me, but you're in the wrong and not me. If you want to judge somebody else for passing the plate, they're, not, they're trying not to drink judgment on themselves or eat judgment on themselves. It's not our place to judge them for that. Maybe they're not a believer. Let's make them welcome and love them until they do feel that they are a believer and can partake of the Lord's Supper. Maybe they are struggling with something more severe than we could ever realize. There have been people in this church that said, Pastor, is it okay that I pass the plate? I'm just, I'm not at a place where I can forgive this person for the abuse that they put me through, for what they did to my children, for the things that have happened in the past that are serious and heavy sins. It's not our place to judge. We just don't know. This should be a place where when we take the Lord's Supper, I'm looking at my heart and you're looking at yours. And if you take the bread, you take the bread. But you take the bread knowing that if you don't examine it and your heart's not right, if I take the bread and I don't examine it and my heart's not right, the Bible tells us we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. Folks, this is, this is very serious, heavy stuff. Throughout church history, there have been so many different interpretations of what's actually happening in the Lord's Supper because of how serious and heavy it is. I got some Fun theological words for you, all right? We're, we're going to wrap up. We're going to land the plane. I promise, but hang with me. You're going to write these down. You're going to sound like you've been to seminary, all right? Transubstantiation, all right? Anybody know that word? It's a fun word. Transubstantiation. It's not in your book, okay? This is extra stuff, all right? You didn't, you didn't pay for this, but you're going to get it anyway, all right? Transubstantiation. That means that in the church history, there was a time where they believed, and sometimes in some denominations and some churches, they still believe this, that when the priest raised the bread up above his head, in that moment, the bread actually became the body. That you are actually partaking of the body of Jesus. Now, it still looks and feels and tastes like bread, but it becomes the body. That's what transubstantiation is. So next time you're talking to your church friends from like, you know, Southside or First Andy or, you know, Harmony or somewhere else, you'd be like, so when uh, you guys partake of the Lord's Supper, do you believe in transubstantiation? And they're going to be like, whoa. Y'all at another level down there at Bethany. I don't know what's going on. So in reverse to that, there's consubstantiation. These debates have gone on for thousands of years. No, 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 no. It just appears like the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus, but it's not 
the actual body and the actual blood. It just seems like it, but it's not the actual body or blood. Then you got people that are like, you know what? It's just a symbol. It doesn't really mean a whole lot. It's just a symbol. That tradition kind of died out, all right? Don't, don't believe in that. Don't fall into that lie. But then there's kind of the middle ground where we kind of land today. And that's, there is something very special and unique and mysterious about this. It's an act of worship where Christ and His Spirit is present with us in a powerful way. But we don't really understand what that is. We don't really know how Christ is present with us, but we know that He is. And so, folks, that's all we're going to do this morning, okay? I know there's a lot more book, and there's only one more week of this, and you, you might be worried about it right now. But I, I hope you understand we say these things so that we can all be on the same page. Because believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper are essential arms of the body of Christ. It's the right arm and the left arm, okay? These are the two most primary ordinances that we observe. That's why when we baptize people, you'll see the students erupt in applause and stand up and clap. And our whole church should do that because that's somebody who just got raised from the dead. And folks, this morning, if you've never done that, today's your opportunity to make it right. Listen, if you've been eating and drinking the bread and taking the cup in an unworthy manner, today's the day to come down and say, Lord, symbolically, I'm at these steps, I'm on my knees because I'm sorry for the way that I have flippantly approached baptism and the Lord's Supper when they are obviously so important in your word. Folks, this morning, if you can't honestly say, I've been through believer's baptism, if you can't honestly say that I could eat the bread and drink the cup, And not be drinking judgment on myself. Because I am a believer. If you can't say that. I don't care how many times you've been dunked. I don't care how long you've been in this church. You need to come and make it right. There is no shame in getting your baptism on the right side of your salvation. There is no shame in coming down front and saying, I just did not really get it. I did not believe the right way, but now I understand. Maybe not because of this sermon, maybe because of other things that God is doing in your life. We have brothers and sisters in this church who have done just that. They were about to be ordained as deacons. And they said to their pastor, I can't be a deacon. And the pastor said, why? And this brother said, because I'm not really a Christian. And I just got it. And I want to be saved right now. Folks, it happens every day. That is a true story from a brother that is your brother if you are a member of this church. Folks, it happens. So this morning, don't don't just think, well, that was a great intellectual speech on baptism and the Lord's Supper. I sure appreciate all of the history and the things that the pastor taught me. This is designed also to pierce our hearts that we might be baptized in the right manner. We might worship in the right way when we take the Lord's Supper. So I would ask if you would bow with me and let's pray and enter into a time of responding to the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for these ordinances that you have shown us and taught us, given us examples of. Lord, thank you that we can worship you not only in giving, not only in preaching, not only in singing, but also in being baptized and rejoicing with our brothers and sisters who are buried with you and raised to walk in new life. Lord, we, we, we rejoice and we worship in these ways because you have given them to us as gifts. It is a gift to be able to worship you through the Lord's Supper. 
it is a gift to celebrate baptism. Lord, may we be a church that puts the correct emphasis and importance on these things. May we know where we stand and what we believe. May we proudly wear the wedding ring that shows we are believers and adopted children in your family. Father, I I don't know who or how you may be working this morning. But we ask that as we go into a time of response that your spirit would move among us and stir our hearts to respond to you in obedience, regardless of what that looks like or what other people may think. And we say all these things and praise them to you, our Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.